Greetings, constant listeners. It's your boy, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. Now, you're probably wondering, Mike, what's up? Why aren't we on the mile? Well, look, we're bumping things back a bit. So expect to hear our full dissection of Frank Darabont's The Green Mile next week. But here's the good news. What you're about to hear is our four-part rewatch of Mick Garris's The Stand, which we recorded way, way back in April and May. You know, when the pandemic just started and we had no clue what was in store for us. Here's the thing, though. While we shared the first part with you, the three other chapters were exclusive to the Barons, our Patreon page. Now, in anticipation of CBS All Access's new miniseries, The Stand, and really because this is the season of giving, we've decided to unlock all four just for you. My Life for You? Yes, our four-part miniseries, Just for You. Consider it an extra-long sweet treat that will keep you entertained for a few long days and maybe even a few pleasant nights. Happy holidays. And please, for the love of God, wear a mask. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and today we are here to discuss part three of the 1994 Stand miniseries. We've been in the midst of a great rewatch uh, to honor and celebrate the current pandemic. Is that a way to put it? <laughs> yeah, honor. What a, what a, yeah. What a pleasant way to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. So just kidding. No, we're all losing our minds, and we figured what better way to uh, to deal with our minds being lost than to watch a six-and-a-half-hour epic about a devastating flu that kills off 99% of the population. So, <laughs> so let's yeah, go around right. and, uh, and introduce ourselves. Uh, Mike, why don't you start? Well, I'm Michael. Miguel Ferrer Rothman. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that we're celebrating the pandemic and watching The Stand. In uh, my interview with Joe Bob Briggs this week, he thinks people are absolutely crazy to be reading The Stand and watching The Stand. Uh, we, we, we were saying how everyone's sadistic, sadists, if you will. Uh, so I guess we're sadists. We're sitting yeah. here watch, watching his very movie. So yeah, I know he did, he's in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So He's the star. <laughs> Did he say anything else about the stand? <laughs> no, no. We just talked about. I, I just asked if he's, you know, the fact that he like read the book and also lived in it, but being the movie, if he saw any sort of, you know, parallels to, you know, in the book and what's what's going on right now. And he's just like, no, I, mean, I have no interest in going back to it, and I don't know why anyone else is right now. And it got us into pandemic and contagion movies, and then he he slammed contagion also, which is pretty great. He's, I, I love him, but. Uh, Fun I mean, times. if you want to, if you do want to hear him talk about the stand, uh, revisit our interview with him from last year. Correct. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He went in. He talked about how Stephen King on the set, uh, or no, on the set they had a, a phone and a briefcase that that dialed up to Stephen King, which is pretty funny. So. And didn't he have like a death scene in the movie that they? He cut? did. Yeah. And uh, if you look online, you could find uh, makeup tests with uh, where he has the tube neck. So. Uh oh. Um, yeah. Uh, Mac, why don't you introduce yourself? 
This is Mackenzie or Mac, as Randall likes to call me, <laughs> Wildcard Gerber. And I am a constant contributor to this podcast, as well as Halloweenies. And I'm very excited to talk about um, part three the betrayal. The betrayal. Uh, love the name. Uh, this one was, I, <laughs> I remember <laughs> when I said that I wasn't going to be on the second episode, but I'll be on three. And I was thinking three was not this one. <laughs> so I was really excited watching this uh, this entry uh, yeah. and, and raring to talk about it. Um, yeah. And who is joining us from Nashville? Who is this? Hey, this is Jen, a real wowzer, Adams. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm a co-host of the Horror Virgin podcast um, and contributor to the Losers Club now, I guess. Yeah, we love having um, you around. Yeah, I'm so excited. And I love, love, love The Stand. And um, this is my favorite part of the book and interested to talk about how it translates to TV. Um, you know, because not everything is fantastic. No. Yeah, let's I would yeah. love to hear well, a little talking bit. About. <laughs> We've kind of been going around talking about how we first encountered The Stand and The Stand miniseries. So we'd love to hear that from you as well. Yeah, so I have said in the past that this was my first experience with Stephen King, but that that can't be true because it came out in 94, and in 94 I was in eighth grade, and I have these memories of being in like fifth or sixth grade and like trying to like beg people to watch like Children of the Corn and Pet Cemetery at slumber parties and like reading um, stories from Night Shift when I spent the night with friends. So that was the kid that I was. But um, I like I think but I have these memories of going into eighth grade and talking about this show. It was almost like a water cooler kind of thing in my little um, middle school, but it can't have been the first thing that I encountered with Stephen King, but I think it's what really made me fall in love with Stephen King because I read this book. I still have the copy that I read and it's like falling apart, even with all the tape that I've put on it to keep it together. Nice. Um, and I just, after this, like I couldn't get enough and I started reading everything I could get my hands on. That's cool. And wait, remind me, did you say you read it first or you saw this first? I saw this first yeah. and then I read it, yes. but it had been on my dad's bookshelf for like a while. And I kind of just looked at it like really fascinated by it. And then I was like, oh, that's what this is. I love this. Yeah. Were your parents supportive of you reading it at that age? They kind of were. Yeah. Um, I think in, in fifth and sixth grade, they were not so cool with it. But then once I was in like seventh and eighth, they were and my a lot of my friends were already reading that kind of stuff. They were like, yeah, whatever. Plus, my dad already had them. So I would just like sneak them down and read them in my bedroom when they and they didn't notice they were gone from the shelf. So, right. you know. Well, great. Uh, well, this is Randall Disco Queen Colburn. I'm going <laughs> to not not be rocking. I'm oh, disco yeah. straight for this wow. episode. Unprecedented. And, uh, Lots, yeah, of Herald. It's huge. Lots of Harold intros. You're strutting. <laughs> well, Harold is Harold's one of my him and Bowers are my two favorite characters in the yeah. the entire King Canon. So it's uh and this is a big Harold episode. So what happens in this episode? <laughs> I guess I'll just do a, a quick rundown. Basically, everyone arrives in Boulder. Uh, the Boulder Free Zone Committee uh, starts up. Uh, they start to rebuild. <laughs> are you laughing? <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know why, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, basically, the communities start to develop uh, both in Boulder and in Las Vegas. and But there's a couple interlopers, including Harold Lauder and Nadine Cross, who are not quite on the same wavelength as Mother Abigail, but they are there and planning a sabotage that culminates in a bomb planted at during a Boulder Free Zone Committee meeting that kills our beloved Nick Andros, played by <laughs> uh, ultimate hunk Rob Lowe. 
Um, and then also we get uh, we get some action in Vegas with the trash can man showing up. Uh, he's he's building bombs and stuff. And then uh, what else does Randall Flagg do in the third part? Why am I blanking? He's hanging, hanging around. around. He, yeah. Oh, he creeps on Nadine a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah there's like a bunch yeah. of like dreams and flashbacks with that. And so, uh, and then He's also it around. ends with Mother Abigail basically going off on a vision quest, coming back emaciated and dying before sending off uh, Stu, Glenn, Ralph, and Larry to Vegas to travel on foot like it was the Bible or something. Yeah. And uh, to <laughs> put an end. To, to make a stand, people in, to make a stand, yeah. and so that's what we're going to be discussing. And so, yeah, this is the part of the book that I think, I think, when if you go back and listen to our stand episodes, we struggled with this part because there's we, you spend a lot of time basically going back and forth between uh, Boulder Free Zone transcripts from the various meetings they've been having, and then everyone ending with. Franny and Stu banging in some way, shape, or form, yeah. <laughs> and them saying really cheesy lines to each other that we love to quote. Yeah. But Jen, so you you are a fan of this section of the book. I would, and we would love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, this is my favorite section of the book, and I think like <clears throat> to try to explain it, I'm gonna let's take us to the fourth season of Arrested Development, okay. <laughs> and I was huh. so excited for this season because I love the first three, and I was watching it, and I was like, get the damn cast together, <laughs> because they everybody was on their own little adventures, and it's just not, it wasn't as exciting, and so this is the section where all of these characters that we've like fallen in love with mm. are finally interacting, and that's why I like it so much. I think it's also kind of a return to normalcy, and like, a lot of the things we've been talking about and planning are actually starting to come together. And I know you guys don't like the meeting notes. And I, I will admit, maybe we could have had one less meeting in the books than we do. <laughs> yeah. But I just love, like, seeing them all interact with each other, you know? And I think, like, the fact that they cut the meeting so short actually, like makes a lot of what comes next seem like real clunky and forced yeah. you know so i think they actually could have like spaced this out a little bit you know but yeah this is like one of my favorite sections like and we get the uh the franny and stew which was like growing up that's what i thought like love was and like, oh they're so romantic and gary sinise is so dreamy so like i loved watching all of this stuff and i love harold as well although my thoughts about him have kind of changed over the past year but um that we just get to see all this exciting stuff and nobody is really like, except for the bomb, everybody's pretty happy. And I kind of like that, you know? Yeah, that's true. And we do get to see sort of, I, I know what you mean. There is this uh, sense of getting the get, getting the band together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because, mm -hmm. and that's part of the fun of, you know, when you get like Nick and Tom and Ralph linking up on the road or, you know, Larry and Nadine and stuff like that. That is part of the joy is mm -hmm. watching the characters co collide together uh, mm -hmm. once we get there. And yeah, you're right. We, I actually was thinking about that while I was watching it. I was like, we never really get a scene where like, we get like a couple scenes where people meet, but like, like, you know, when, uh, when Stu and all of them show up, like in the background, you see like Nick and Stu shake hands, you know? And it's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and it's like, I don't know. You wish that there was something a little more there that actually showed a developing relationship. But so you yeah, said, I you said your thoughts changed on Harold in the last year. I'd love to hear you talk about that. So I love, like, like you love um, Harold too. I love him. And I always thought he was the most like intriguing character. And partly when I was little, I had a big crush on Parker Lewis from Parker Lewis. <laughs> yes. So I, I was Lewis. like, yes, Corin Nimick is in this. And I was really excited. Um, 
But and I thought his storyline was really like he's got a really intriguing arc, and I think it's one a lot of people can relate to of just being feeling like insecure and not like ever feeling like you fit in. Um, and so I have actually wrote like a rough draft of an essay a while ago about how like Harold is the biggest tragedy in the stand. Mm. Um, and I think there's still a lot of validity to that. But over the past year, and partly because I've been going to a lot of therapy, I realized like a lot of those ideas were formed from just growing up with a lot of really toxic men and boys. Interesting. Because like Harold is an incel. Yes, he is. You know? Yeah. Like, and so now I'm looking at him and I'm like, no, I don't like, I don't want to pity you because like what I thought was such a tragedy was that he couldn't ever see his value mm -hmm. and he left Boulder and this is getting into a little ahead, but like he could like his suicide note is just so sad because he could have been something in Boulder. And this is when we see the seeds of that. He just can't see it. And he's so easily swayed. And I think that's what's the tragedy. But like all of that is within his power. Right. And I think that's what frustrates me so much. Yeah. You know, that's that's a great point. And that is something I feel like we touched on in the episode. Um, I, I, I'm sure I did because I'm I love that character precisely mm -hmm. because of a lot of what you're saying, which is that he could be of great value there, especially in the book. They really get into how he was a really vital member of the, like he was doing mm -hmm. a lot of the hard work. He had a lot of good ideas and he was, you know, willing to be a workhorse. And there is this really wonderful moment where he goes on like a bike ride, like on a motorcycle and he's driving yeah. through the neighborhood. Yeah. Do you remember that Mike? And like mm -hmm. he, and he's, and he basically has this moment where he makes that decision. He's like, I could actually settle in here. Like yeah. I could, mm -hmm. I could build a life here and I could, be valued here but it, that's the thing is that it's not that he can't see his value because he can it's that he chooses because he's so filled with his his ego and his resentment is what uh -huh. he lets win you know mm -hmm. yeah he just can't let it go right he's yeah. so mad at Stu. he's so uh uh fucked up about about um uh, franny and just feels slighted in every way by mm -hmm. all these people because he doesn't feel like like he knows he can provide value, but he doesn't feel like they value him enough. And uh, he just wants people basically to worship him. And that's the thing mm -hmm. with a lot of incels. Like, I'll, and this is a little dark, but I'll, I promise I won't dwell on it. But it's like, I always remember uh, oh, Elliot Roger, who was the incel who shot up the sorority uh, some years ago. He, in videos that he would make, would always talk about what an amazing guy he was and how he was this like uh, testament to masculinity and all these other things. And he's like, I don't understand why women don't like me because I'm such a perfect human being you know and <laughs> it's so fucked up but it's like that is mm -hmm. the mindset of a lot of incels which is that uh is they have no self-awareness they're you know so blinded by their own resentment and their own self-aggrandizing like egos that they can't recognize um humility in any way shape or form and uh and and then of course there's the whole narcissistic aspect to it which is that you know they can't develop empathy for other people or actually view things from different perspectives and so uh so that's what i think i've always really liked about Harold was that it's like he is this really interesting figure and there is a tragedy to him but it's also one of his own doing you know it's not like mm -hmm. it's like whereas Nadine I think is a more tragic figure because the problem in the book and in the miniseries and I want to talk about it is that it feels like she doesn't get a chance you she know never I mean? does yeah no, yeah that's my like biggest issue she's doomed whereas Harold had a choice you know and that's sort yeah. of I think uh, a really fa I feel like in the book it's a little more nuanced but in the series especially and we'll talk more about it later but I, th I think I think Nadine has done so dirty like it, I can't even get past it and so it's interesting yeah. stuff but um but let's uh let's talk about maybe 
before we get into all that stuff, let's talk about maybe some scenes that we liked in this part. Like, what stands out to you as something that worked in this part? Uh, Mike, why don't you start? Well, I mean, one of my favorite aspects of the book, because I have a really love-hate relationship, mostly hate with this section of the book, just because I feel like it starts getting a little egregious with regards to character arcs. Like, you mentioned Nadine. Nadine is one of the the probably the worst arcs um, of this book, if only because you're right, he, she never gets a chance and she definitely doesn't get a chance in this show and um, the miniseries. And they kind of, uh, Harold kind of falls into that pitfall too, because they're like, well, these are the two outcasts. So we're just going to go in there and they give a little nuance to Harold. Cause then you you kind of see him working a little bit um, on the crew, uh, especially with like picking up the bodies, uh, the cordwood. Uh, but uh, you know, for the <laughs> most part, like, it is so, you know, blasé. But what I do love about this section of the book is when uh, Glenn kind of goes off and talks about the, the, the philosophy of society and gets into the, some of the more anthropological uh, discussions um, and uh, about just the construction of society and like what's damned society in the past. And we get a really great scene that's actually at the amphitheater that they discuss in the book uh, or that they said it in the or King said it in the book. And uh, and it's a really great moment. And it's the only moment I would argue in this entire chapter that kind of distracts or dissuades from the fact that everything else seems so assuredly Christian and uh, religious. <laughs> uh, because it's the one time where he's actually like kind of challenging the, like the tenets of God in Scripture and um, you know the the fallacies that religion uh, imposes upon society, which is all stuff that King gets into it in. in epic depth in the book uh which is one of the reasons why i love that section so much and and i love watching uh ray walson deliver these the these you know these lines and uh these diatribes and just the way it kind of kicks off this section is really great and like i you know we talked about how we should have more mini meeting minutes in this uh this section and jen did i think we could have used like one more with uh with glenn uh, but I know a lot of people aren't fans of, of when he goes and rambles, but that was always, no, my I love that thing. stuff. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. So uh, I love Mac, that part. Mac, what about you? What did you enjoy? Uh, you know, I was trying to think why I enjoyed this series so much when I first watched it when I was a kid. And I kind of, I do agree with Jen a little bit in this sense that in, in this chapter of the, of the mini series, I think I was really excited to see everybody together it threw me off a little bit. I, I remember because we were recording this on VHS back in the day, you know, when it was when it was on live, and uh-huh. I remember I remember starting this and thinking, "Oh, got it. We we missed something. We you know we we recorded the wrong thing or didn't pick up the first like thirty minutes because it just starts with that surgery and there was like yeah. random people there that have not been on the show yet. And it was really confusing. Uh, but I do, but I agree in the sense that. Um, you know, we, we do get these sequences with everybody. Like I remember like things that stand out to me are, yes, the meeting with the bomb, uh, the ad hoc committee, obviously. Uh, I, I actually like that scene. It's probably because it's so short. <laughs> it's such a, like breath <laughs> of fresh air compared to the book. Um, and they kind of just cut it out. But uh, it, it's fun to see everybody kind of playing off each other. And I think it's also and I think you might've mentioned this the first time around Randall, but it, I think Larry's got a lot to do in this uh, section of the miniseries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see him turn around a little bit. Like there's a little, there's more to him in this. And I don't know if it's because he's with Lucy now or whatever, but like, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, 
I don't know. I'd have to reach though. All the Nadine and Harold stuff, I, I don't really like. It's a slog to get through that stuff in this version. Hey, we're I talking mean, about I, happy I, things right now. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I, if we're talking about happy things, then I love the Cordwood sequence. Love Cordwood. <laughs> uh, shout yeah, out that, to Dan Caffrey. That um, stuff is that stuff is to me like my favorite as well. Is the is the moments like when they're cleaning up the dead bodies and yeah, and, and also the scene with Glenn and Stu and Ralph where they're talking about oh and nick and they're talking about sort of the the larger implications of of you know the society that they built and what mother abigail represents within that that stuff is all super interesting to me and and it's and of course that's the stuff that's kind of you know most uh reverent to king's text i think which says a lot so uh jen how about you what is uh some stuff that stands out to you as as uh as good um, well, I love the Stu and Franny finally um, getting together, although it was really, it, it, we're talking about good stuff. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the meeting, like the big meeting is probably my favorite part of this episode. And I'm not going to lie, I cried a little bit when they were singing the National Anthem. Aww. And I think that's probably because of like where we are right now and like my mental state. And I, w- and I think there's just something so powerful about like, lots of people singing together. I think that's a really like powerful uniting thing. And um, nobody's really trying to like be like this diva. They're all just kind of singing with this authentic voice. And like, I made me start thinking about like when I'm going to be in a situation like that again, yeah. you know, cause we've been shut down for like a month or six, two months at this point. And like, I, it was just like to see them like celebrate getting back on their feet again, I think kind of reminded me of where we are right now as a country and also like made me nostalgic for those kind of things that I think we take for granted. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point. And it's something that I I actually want to use that meeting as sort of a jumping off point because, and Mike, you touched on this too, which is the Christian idea the sort of like, uh, it's like, it's, it's the idea of like an inherent goodness and an inherent badness, which Mm -hmm. is something that I think Mm -hmm. King complicates in the, uh, in the book and and we talked we talked about this a bit uh in the part two episode but just the idea of like creating a functioning democracy versus creating like a totalitarian state and how um you know from the outsider like you know you can randall flag can say you know our town has no crime it has no drugs it has no anything like we are a functioning society uh and everything but that's because he kills people who do anything you know whereas in a democracy mm-hmm. um you're putting more power to the people and so things are going to be uh maybe a little sloppier because you are allowing people to fail you know and so it's uh i think that that's super interesting but the way it's framed in the miniseries, and this is where I struggle along with you, Mike, is that there is this sort of like um, uh, warmth that is mm-hmm. presented with like this cleanliness, this warmth, that scene when they show up at the meeting and they show the settlers on the wall and yeah. like that happy music's playing and everybody <laughs> is so nice. You know what I mean? Like everybody's so happy together. And uh and obviously they would be because they've gathered in a huge group and they've all been on their own and traveling across the country. But it's like, but there is this sort of, um, uh, I don't know, peacefulness that kind of reigns over 
uh, Boulder and you see like the barbecues going on. There's children everywhere, you know? And then when you go in Vegas, Mm -hmm. we see dudes with beards and motorcycle Mm -hmm. uh, vests with holding, just walking down the street carrying fucking semi-automatic rifles, you know? And it's like... That one shot of the guy where his gut out and then the the motorcycle guy, it's the first shot that in Vegas, I was just cracking up. Because it's literally like they're like, Mick Garris is like, all right, now stay center. This is really going to show that we're with the the villains, the gross, you know, the 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 the, the dredges of society, uh, right? Which is something that like they try to say, like in the book, they actively push against that narrative, mm-hmm. yeah. And and mm-hmm. also like I know in part four, Randall Flagg like does try to say like our society is better than yours, you know. And they try to pull mm-hmm. that talking point from the book, but it doesn't really work when the only depictions you show is like <laughs> it's like cars on fire and and like scary looking dudes with guns, yeah. you know? Whereas like everybody in the free zone kind of, you know, they look like families, you know, they look like suburban families. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and and honestly like to digress on that point just a little bit, it's that it, it's just so simple and boilerplate uh when you get that those two opposing sides. And even just now looking out, like the settlers thing is a really interesting uh point because that's all just totally you know rewritten history uh and when you look when you really Mm -hmm. think about it i mean like what were the sellers well you know they came over with a lot of diseases there's uh they 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 raped and pillaged they just they destroyed a previous civilization and it actually kind of feeds into what glenn's discussing at the amphitheater which is that the way that we were is why they are now and why things you know fell apart why you know things fell apart and you know as they say uh to to, to quote the the classic roots album uh that used the (laughs) the age-old adage uh but uh for for me what really stands out and hurts this movie more is that that ignorance towards it so it actually kind of comes off as like schmaltzy smugness um and to the Mm -hmm. point that i always uh, and it's so like it's so like uh, blatantly white, and I never do that, and uh, and I don't want to try to get onto that that the you know to that point a little bit too much, but it is, and it's like when you have that, and you have like that one portrait where it just totally like leans into this like fabricated history, dismissing the true nature of why this country exists, and and then you also have that that sort of like well we're holier than it just comes off as holier than now you know too long well it makes it makes glenn's stuff feel like lip service right yeah because Mm -hmm. the world that they're showing isn't that complicated and Mm -hmm. i think the thing that really uh encapsulates that for me is that is the is larry and nadine because larry's been this like problematic dude who treats women like shit and uh is really selfish and you know is in it for himself and then but when he shows up in the free zone suddenly he's not wearing black anymore he's wearing a blue vest and like a gray shirt and suddenly the little boy joe who was feral when he met Mm -hmm. him and tried to stab him is suddenly like happy and good and larry's got his arm around him like we don't see that that transition and uh and so larry is just suddenly good and joe is suddenly good because they arrived in boulder whereas nadine shows up and she's got gray hair uh red lipstick and and she approaches mother abigail and mother abigail screams uh what I have her with the line down. Who is this woman who comes, you know? And uh, and she's just immediately distrustful of her. And so it does paint that portrait of uh, Larry is good and Nadine mm-hmm. is evil. And yeah. it is that mm-hmm. 
complex and they and they they physically manifest in that way like larry just looks cleaner like from top to bottom like he shaves and everything you know and it's like nadine gets all these darker features to her i think the gray hair is super sexy honestly but it is meant to be (laughs) like she's you know she's become darker you know what i mean and so it's it's to me sort of it that's sort of the the encapsulation I think of what bugs me about this is that there is this clear demarcation between what is good and what is evil. And, and there is, and the, the thing is it's filmed like, like a Christian movie, you know, exactly. like a lot of that stuff. That's, that's another yeah, huge Randall, major issue. You know, What's up, Mac? They only had six hours to tell this whole story. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with y'all. I, I, I do. I think it feels like, so, a chapter that we thought was too long for for a specific reason. I feel like to cut the the ad hoc meetings down, sure, but to spend as little time as they do with this chapter, it it does do a disservice because, like you said, everything becomes kind of like a caricature of what mm-hmm. it is in the novel because they have they only have an hour and a half to get these points across. But I feel like they, they had, you had an hour and a half. That's a long time, you know. Like they they should have jumped time a bit more. Because it would have been nice to see the slow burn of Larry coming around to who he is now. You know what I mean? We don't get to see mm-hmm. any of that. We just they just jump time and they expect us to just be be along for the ride now. And we're like, okay, well, we knew maybe he was going on that direction, so I guess we have to just accept it. But it's like you're asking people to swallow, you know, and they haven't even, you know, they haven't seen it happen. No, um, and no, most yeah. of it's all aesthetics. It's like, well, yeah. you know, you get the, 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 the slimy Larry and Nadine, the rejection music from WG Snuffy Walden to know that something sinful's happening. And then, like, you know, mm. Nadine's wearing this sultry red dress that's taken right off of the, the shelf of Red Shoe Diaries. And then, you know, you have the, the sort of the, the, the black and white of Mother Abigail, the, the, you know, the beacon of good, saying specifically what you were just saying, Randall, so that the viewer can go, oh, she's bad, without having any real reason why. I mean... The lack of nuance is so devastating, especially in this chapter, because like as much as we want to like, you know, frown and go and and just get and scoff at all the ad hoc meetings. What King does really well in these chapters in the book is meditate with the characters and kind of evolve the, the their their arcs and get into a place that makes sense for the final, you know, end game. So you know, like Larry is a perfect mm-hmm. example of this in the sense that we really only see him on the highway playing, you know, guitar with this god awful portrait of a CGI like burning, you know, horizon. Uh, and then, you know, hey, come on, come on. Yeah, you know, it's ninety four, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but then, you know, he meets, you know, he meets Joe um, and his mother, and automatically is like made a kind of a one eighty without us even seeing any sort of revelation. Um, and you know, yeah, we only get a few amount of. Uh, moments for any character because there's only so many episodes and there's only so much runtime, but it just seems like they're, it, it, they, the, the more they put band-aids on things and the more they connected bridges, um, you know, the bridges keep getting rickety and rickety, more and more rickettier. And you find yourself with a lot of islands uh, with character, with regards to characters where they're just yeah. like, Oh yeah, that's it. And then that was why most of it is aesthetic that have to take on that weight and that, 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 you know, they have to kind of do the, the heavy lifting to make you understand yeah. thematically where everything is. And this chapter right. is just particularly egregious in that respect. Well, well, and I feel like in the book, like you, they spend enough time in Boulder that you start to see that facade start to crumble yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit. Like there's the drunk guy who goes and throws rocks and all this stuff and they don't know what to do about law enforcement. And while that's mundane, like, I think that bears out, um, 
oh god i'm for glenn's point mm-hmm. like when he's having that big diatribe like you start to see that yeah mother abigail's got this vision but like there's reality and i think it backs up a lot of what glenn is saying and i remember them describing her as other directed or him describing her as other directed which I thought was interesting. It was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase, especially like growing up in the Bible Belt where this just seemed like what I saw all the time. Um, But I think you don't get that space here, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, And I remember like not ever caring about Larry's arc at all until I read this book as an adult and I'd had a long distance between when I'd seen the miniseries because you just don't like it. He changes overnight and there's just no depth to his character because he has an arc that's very similar to Harold's in a lot of ways, you know? And I feel like he's just the successful version of that. Right. Yeah. I actually see a lot of similarities and, and don't laugh between Larry and Han Solo from the original Star Wars. Uh, I feel like uh, Larry is very similar to the bad boy, uh, you know, t- true rebel of Han Solo and a new hope uh, slash Star yeah. Wars and, and Empire Strikes Back. And everything else after the first uh, chapter and a half is where we see Han Solo after Carbonite, where he's not really taken the crazy wrist doesn't have the attitude anymore seems to be more wholesome almost like a family man like dad ish and now mike yeah uh, let me like interject now he's had a lot of time to think that carbonite oh that's true and maybe larry has had a lot of time to think in the the carbonite of the mind um as he's walking from larry's been on the road alone for a while yeah yeah either way that's all to say is that I, I feel like they kind of uh, betray the origins of Larry by just making him this kind of soft boy Christian, new newborn Christian almost. It, it, it's right. Even, would you, yeah, it's just weird. Would you have they rather seen Lucy him go wife. the Herald route? I, I would rather have seen him more conflicted, you know? Like when he's on the lawn with Nadine, why yeah. isn't it uh, like even just give him a moment where he like absolutely even tries to kiss her. And then he's like, no, I can't do this. Like, he, he, but they're so worried that, and, and this comes down to even just kind of like boilerplate television of the early nineties that like, even if you hint that someone's going to be doing something evil, they're evil. Like, you know, we love yeah. the, we yeah, love the idea I mean, of breaking is... bad now where you can have that nuance of like where he starts off good and then slowly be, unravels and becomes bad. But at this time in television, at this point, at least you don't really get that gray area. It's either one side or no, the other. No, it's very true. Mm-hmm. So. They have to convince him to join the committee, too. You mm-hmm. know? And that, I thought, was mm-hmm. like a lot of depth to his character. Like, he's, he didn't want to take responsibility for anything anymore because he was terrified of it. And, like, that kind of informs him, like, leading the charge in the fourth chapter. And we miss all of that. Yeah. And then yeah. there's the mentorship with him and the judge that we lose. Like, mm-hmm. I think at the end of this, this, and I might have missed something, but is this the first scene we actually see him interact with the judge when he's sending him off to be a spy? Uh, yeah. I, he mentions the judge, like, in the meeting, but the first time you see him interact with him is that scene when yeah. he, yeah, yeah, sends him off. So Which there's that. And then also, like, can we just talk a little bit about the scene with Nadine on the lawn? Because that scene, like, makes me angry because yep. it's like she comes and makes herself vulnerable to him. Like mm-hmm. she basically says like, help me, save me. And he like throws yeah, her away. And why, like, what did she even do? You know, she <laughs> like, says the only way to say, the only way to be saved is, is to fuck her. That, that's, that, yeah. that, 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 that's, if she was just like, I need, I need you like as a friend or whatever, or I need, I need you to help me. It'd be one thing, but she's like, the only way that I can I can be saved is if you sleep with me. So it's like I, I think that is a rushed scene. I think they, yeah. they were like, Well, we need to we need to like get from point A to point B, so we gotta we have to do this. 
but he's so self-righteous because he's like he's like lucy is my wife my uh-huh. wife you know and then it's he's like and that's him. what's frustrating though because the, you, again we've we've jumped so much time mm-hmm. it, you're like wait wait when did they get married like how long have they been on the road <laughs> yeah. you don't right. know the time frame so weird and and let me jump back to this time frame thing i'm really confused because in <laughs> did we talk about this last time where franny is due in january mm-hmm. the outbreak doesn't really start till june how how is this Stu's baby? It's not Stu's. It's baby. not Stu's baby. It's Jess's baby. But see, but that's really confusing because it they is. don't. They do I always not thought it was lay Stu's it out baby. there at all. I mean, you know that's from from the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the get go in the book, you know seem, it. They make it seem like it's not because the way that she tells the way <laughs> that she old, tells yeah. Stu, she's like. There's a whole sequence there where they're looking at each other, and it's very much the whole like I just told you that this baby is yours, and like, are you going to react in a positive yeah. way or in a negative way? It's it's very very weirdly done because mm-hmm. it, had they just said like, because then then he says, "Have you told Harold?" Which makes it sound like it is them, it is the, their baby. But well, there's the that, time, but the also it's like, that makes sense. yeah, because she tells Stu, and then he reacts by like banging her. So <laughs> you think that it was his, and then when they she tells, or it's like I think she does. This isn't like doesn't Stu have like his arm around her? Like when they she tells Harold, am I wrong? When they're I, walking back to camp, he does. Yeah, yeah. there's like just this sense that because like it, it arrives it, with her also with them with it with them also telling Harold that they're together mm-hmm. so that those revelations like come at the same time. And yeah, and it, it really like when I was a kid, I always thought it was Stu's baby, but, uh, but rewatching it, they never, it is, they just don't clarify it's Jess's baby. But like, <laughs> if you go into it thinking like knowing it's Jess's baby, then it, it works that way. But uh-huh. like, but they don't make it implicitly clear, which I do think is really weird. Well, because yeah. this is the first time we like the audience learns that she's pregnant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So that and like if we had seen a little bit, and that's with like with her diaries, we are like firmly where she is, and we understand why she's afraid to tell Stu and to tell anybody else. But we don't get any of that here. It's mm-hmm. very like I really feel like the space this episode could have been split and just further developed. Although I really think the whole thing could have just been a ten episode series. Now you know. Yeah. Well, it is going to be this fall. Yeah, it is. Well, if it comes <laughs> out this fall, we'll, we'll see if that works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about in the first episode. Is that that's why I think that this show could go the route of what they tried to do with Under the Dome and make it like an actual uh, multi-season story, oh, because God. that way you get all oh, no. the, the room to really go in and dig into these characters and get into mm-hmm. the sort of complexities that you might see in Harold or even to some degree Nadine, although I still think King kind of shorthands her in the book also, but yep. um, you know, I think my, the problem with that though is like if history serves, that is just an awful opportunity for people to go in there and write a bunch of stuff that's not in the books. Mm-hmm. Well, because to, they're trying to like flat, keep to it just going, drag this, some of this yeah. stuff out and like that gets scary because then you're just like, what is going on? You get that weird season two killer storyline from Friday Night Lights, you know? Like yeah. you just you can't you can't I mean you can't do. Or they find the Tailies from Lost. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. Yes. Or Nikki. <laughs> is that is that who it is? Yeah. God. Paulo um, and Nikki. Oh God. Anyway. Nikki and Paolo. Oh, uh, Randall. I wanted to ask you a question. This is a lot, little out, out there. Uh, were you <laughs> dying laughing? <laughs> 
<laughs> when they go into the church and the preacher yep. is dead on the pulpit. Yeah, I have, I yeah. have thoughts. So there's a couple moments like that. Uh, Jen, just so you know, in our previous episodes, I've been sort of railing against any moment where you just see dead people like in the middle, like they were in the middle of doing something and they just drop dead. Um, like playing ping pong. <laughs> yes, like playing ping pong or like, you know, moments like that. And I and we kind of talk through like, like I think Dan Caffrey was a big defender of those moments because he's, oh, you know, it works really quick on you. And so, but for me, I think it's like, so there's one where you see a guy going, when they turn the power on, you see the dead guy in the car going through the car wash. And I'm just kind <laughs> <laughs> like this man literally drove his car and then like the two minutes that it takes to go through a car wash it lost power and he yeah. died like Aww. in there like come on well don't worry like, randall in season two of the stand we get to find out his story it's <laughs> so weird and so but then also see yeah, they so go dirty? they go in the church and hey it's a great shot like i love seeing the priest no, dead yeah, on the is, pulpit i love creepy. all the people in their church clothes dead in the pews but mm. what what that shot says to me is that, like they all died at the exact same time yes exactly. <laughs> like somebody somebody came in and mowed him down in a rain of bullets like that's the only way that makes sense you don't like the priest isn't up there like coughing and coughing and then collapsing on his pulpit and just laying there dead as the rest of the people in the pews also die slowly from a disease you know it's like mm, that's what that's i think true. is so weird about all of it it's like when you you have those moments that are really cool in theory they don't support like they don't stand up to any kind of like reality about how people die from this virus (laughs) right it's not an instantaneous death no (laughs) so i don't know those moments always get me riled up because i just start thinking about the logistics of it and i'm just Mm. like it doesn't hold water (laughs) but uh so okay let's talk about moments that you thought were particularly awful um and hey we've we've (laughs) we don't want to sound like haters we've Obviously, we've talked a lot about this stand on this oh podcast, and we do overall have a lot of affection for this. But especially in this section, there's some rough, rough stuff. So, uh, who, Mac? Why don't you start? What is a scene that you think is particularly egregious in Part Three, the betrayal? Oh, the disco Nadine sequence. <laughs> why do you hate it? Cool Harold, who also. A disservice to Harold. We have we had not fleshed out his love for disco up to this point, so this <laughs> right. comes out of left field, and uh, it's very frustrating um, <laughs> because I didn't peg him for a disco lover, and the way that he wears his size like knee high socks in every sequence when he's like doing it with eighteen, so gross. <laughs> Can't handle it. Yeah, Parker Lewis would oh, never wear man. that. Right, I, I know. I'm like, synchronize that watch, sir, and yeah. get those socks off. <laughs> and that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that that sequence is is pretty awful. Um, oh god, I have a ton. Uh, what about we, what about when we go the around kids, in a like, circle here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, what, Mike? What about when the kids like, "Mommy, Abigail." <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That <laughs> whole mother, sequence. Okay. Lame. God. I hate that sequence when everybody arrives. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and you see them all like staring up with, at her with like wonderment in their eyes. Uh, like it's, just, it's all it's embarrassing, is what right? It is. Because because the thing is, like, what Glenn is saying sort of you know challenges that notion, that idea that we're that they are deifying this woman. And um, but the thing is, that scene it's presented as like the proper reaction because Nadine is vilified for not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I guess like, but what I think is so funny about that scene is like, 
Rob Lowe is in the background just eating snacks. <laughs> <laughs> like if you, I was cracking up because I never noticed realism. it before. <laughs> but I know, but he's like sitting there, like eating like ham, like you know, like just slices of ham or something. And I was cracking well, up because it struck me as like he didn't realize they were filming or something. Maybe maybe he's like Brad Pitt, where he just has to eat in every scene. Um, yeah, you know. But I also. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Let's no, go keep for it, going go around. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, the secrets in the beginning, I was like, everybody has a leather jacket? <laughs> you know, they're like all on yeah. the motorcycles. You have to if you uh, ride a motorcycle. I, apparently. Lot. I think Glenn's the only one bucking the trend. Yeah. I wish Glenn did wear one, like Ray Walston <laughs> in leather. Like, he just, like, he won't stop wearing them. Like, the rest of the series, he's just always in a leather jacket. <laughs> And they're like, they're like, oh, hey, Harold. And like, oh, sorry, Glenn. (laughs) Hey, East Texas, Harold, check this out. And he's like standing next to Kojak with wheelies on his motorcycle. Full leather, yeah. He's would have fringe on it too, I think. Yeah. Kojak's got a little leather dog sidecar. Yeah. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Like Indiana Jones, Uh, Last Crusade. Uh, Jen, what is a moment that you maybe cringed at a little bit? Uh, the whole Nadine and Harold section. I just, I, Ugh. it's one of the few parts in the book that I really don't like. And I was writing notes and I don't know if this is too crass for the podcast, but I was like, what is, why is this fucking hole so sacred? Like, I hate <laughs> the whole concept, like the, the, the purity that like virginity is presented as and how like there's this, like such a clear line between being like a whore and like a Madonna. And I just hate that element. Um, I hate how like she's using that or like she's being used to manipulate Harold. I think it like minimizes like a character that I think could be really intriguing because like her choice to stay, if given the amount of thought that Harold gets in the book about whether he stays or goes like I think I wish Nadine had more of that and I wish we saw her. Um, like struggle with that a little bit more and in less cheesy ways like she basically comes back to the um, I know what you did last summer house and that's Mm -hmm. what makes her go to Harold and it's just so cheesy and it's like diminishes her and just presents women in I feel like this really gross way of like there's this one thing you do and that makes you a bad girl and everything else makes you like something like you can use the sexuality to get what you want. And it just, it's gross. And I love Laura San Giacomo. Um, but, and I think she's doing what she needs to do with this part, but it just, right. it's just gross. And it's gross in the book too. I yeah, love that I line agree. Harold says though, the, you look so tasty, so juicy. Oh, it's so fine. gross. Oh God. Yeah. Just... He's only been watching porn. <laughs> <laughs> it is something else. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, it's one of those sequences where you you want Nadine, like when they're gonna blow up the house. I, you know, she she's got to know Larry's in there. Larry's in the committee meeting, mm-hmm. and and it's like she's just totally turned her back. It's I don't know. Maybe I'm reading that wrong. And I know that he's being really snippy with her, and she's kind of like being you know. <laughs> when people yeah. are snippy with me, I want to blow them up with a bomb. But it's like. <laughs> Well, she's a scorned woman, you know, and I feel like oh, that's like a reductive thing. And let me ask this question. Nadine, she goes to the house in the middle of the fucking day. No one happens to be there. She's lucky as hell. She's got a shoebox under her arm. What if someone was home? They're not looking. They're like, what the fuck? Is, what's in the shoebox? Like, they're yeah. not checking this shoebox. I you assume she did her anything else. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, Randall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she... they, they that's why she goes up to the door and knocks. <laughs> Can we talk about uh, Harold's dream? 
Oh god! Oh yeah! You mean the so, one that Joel Schumacher me as a cut kid. out of Batman Forever? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. All the neon. It does. Yeah. It does feel like they just had some shit laying around. You yes. know, like uh-huh. they had the the. Like, I don't know what kind of, I said weird wolf beast that's in the car that says the <laughs> wild card. He's, you're a real card, huh? And it's like, and then, but that just, like, what what place does that creature have in the world of the stand? Like, it's well, like a dead what? person you know in a it car. Is. Who? It's the kid. It's the kid. Yeah, yeah but like, it's why is he? It's their nod to the kid. But why is he, a, like, um, a wolf? He's a gri- well. He's not a wolf. He's just a grizzled corpse. He, he's he's burned. He's no. Burned he up. is like a creature. Well, the wolves no, ate just, him in the no, book, right? Like, so maybe oh yeah, I guess you're right. The wolves wolf. did eat him. Oh, maybe that that's a good take. Yeah. Maybe they were werewolves. Yeah, yeah they he could has be. like he yeah, has like he was werewolf a werewolf. Vibes. Randall, wake up. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know what? You sold me. I'm I'm in on that scene now. But uh, all right, yeah. <laughs> what part of the cycle are we in, though? Is the the question. Yes. Uh, but no, it's like the lighting is so weird. It is very Batman forever. And it's like, and it's just such a weird scene. And, and I always crack up because there's a moment like this and another place that I brought up as well in the miniseries, but, oh, it's like when, like, clearly things were filmed like at different times so there's like a scene when Stu is walking through the hospital in his dream and he sees this guy with like blood pouring out of his mouth and it's a really horrific shot but then when it cuts to Stu it's like he just kind of glances at it and keeps moving like barely (laughs) reacts to it and it's clearly because you know they probably added it after the fact and um and then the thing like doesn't chase him or anything it just exists you know and um and that kind of stuff always makes me laugh but that's the thing with the well we'll call it the kid uh in the car that (laughs) talks to harold is it like it wakes up and says you're a real card he goes yeah wild card and then it just lowers its head again (laughs) you know it could also be the cabbie from uh scrooged yeah it's definitely the cabbie from Scrooge, or it could be the cabbie from ghostbusters how about that uh Uh, who are you gonna call i have a question for you guys does does anyone understand why randall flags dreams for the people that he's trying to get on his side are scary like nadine dreams of randall so uh randall <laughs> of, re, of you randall uh nadine <laughs> dreams I wish. She's of a flag nadine dreams of flag and like most of the time she wakes up like screaming because like he has to like scare her at the end and you're like why are you going to this guy <laughs> like what what is the draw like i know you it's one thing to be scared of him but like for some reason you're you're, you're just like in love with him half mm-hmm. the dream and then you end up screaming and waking yourself up and then you're still gonna go through with these things it's really confusing okay. i'm like why do so, you have to scare them i i will say jerry dandridge in fright night because and i think like it's the reason that we're all so into horror right now you know especially i think there's that like allure of something that's powerful and scary you know and when you feel like really weak and like scared like you want to go towards something that's going to give you that's going to seem like you're aligning yourself with more power you know yeah also like like, yeah rather than an old i love love dandridge yeah right oh god i mean yeah i I could talk for days about how dreamy he is in that movie but yeah it's like that allure of the vampire thing you know he's glamoring them yeah i guess yeah i I mean i get that but it it just seems like there's always like a scare for the viewer at the end yeah it's like doesn't quite line up i'm like if he was make if he was just like 
you know, sexy dandridge the whole time. And then she wakes up like, holy shit, like <laughs> I've right. got to get to Vegas. That Then I would buy it. But like half the time he's turning around to her and he's got like demon eyes or like, you know, it's just like, why are you scaring her? Like she's already in. She's going to kill these people. <laughs> Well, and I yeah. think that's one uh, of the things that works better in the book, you know, and like in Harold's yeah, dreams, true. like it talks to him about like or talks about him like looking like a pimp, you know, and like beckoning to him and the weird Harold talk, but uh, like yeah. it, it, like dressed more like a monk rather than scary. And I could see why Harold would be drawn to that. But yeah, I think that kind of is just a disservice to Nadine's character in general. You know, I in wish the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I wish they were able to do it more like a John Waters movie or some sort of like uh, meta commentary. And it's just like flag in front of like a really cheesy cheap Las Vegas commercial like hey come to Vegas <laughs> we have great we have great hotel rooms all you could want uh, thousands of vacancies or millions of vacancies and you like see like um, a, a bunch of b-roll of just like a bunch of his cronies just like wandering into like houses and stuff it's just or not even houses but like hotel rooms and then you know there's b-roll of him just like walking through like casino buffets and it's like, <laughs> he's like hey what's for breakfast this morning Gene and it's just like <laughs> got to get a wind machine in his hair it's like just come on down now to flags vegas you'll have a good time meet trash can man someone has a dream early on and they're talking about it maybe it's maybe it's franny but they say that they saw dana glenn and judge ferris on telephone poles and i don't know if i caught that before that it was like the dark man was showing them like he knows that they're, those three are going to die. He, mm-hmm. he can see into the future, but not all the way to the to the to the end, you know. And I thought that, that was kind of creepy. Um, Wait, in the I always thought that imagery. Yeah, in the miniseries, someone someone says that they had a dream where they saw. I think it's Franny. Oh. She says she had a dream where she saw Dana Glenn and Judge Ferris hanging on tele. And, the, and then Stu finishes the dream saying, "Yeah, hanging on telephone poles on on the highway." Blah blah blah. Huh. And I was like, Is that "Oh, in part they're like." Three? Yeah, yeah, it's in the oh. beginning. It's right, it's right before she says, I'm pregnant. <laughs> it's covered up with some huge news right afterwards. Clearly she does say that, and I thought, set. I was like, oh, I, I don't think I paid, I think you're just kind of like, when you're initially watching it, at least I know I was when I was a kid, I probably just paid no attention to that because you just think, well, he's just showing you whatever you want. You know, he's just trying to scare yeah. you. But you the fact Dana that the, those three people, yeah, and you don't know who Dana is really. Um yeah, I just like I like I, I that was the part that I, I did like because I, I just thought, oh, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's a yeah. spooky visual. Like, yeah. Okay. Um, I have a scene that this is Jen. This is a huge running joke with a lot of the rest <laughs> of the losers. I have and, and when oh, I know I, what you're gonna say. <laughs> well, when I watched yes. it, when Mac watched it, and when Dan Caffrey watched it, we all just taped our TVs and <laughs> shut sent this scene to each other, and uh, I'm gonna play it. For, Can you wait, play hold it? on. Yes. Let me let me make sure. Yeah, I got the video. Let me make sure my my headphones are unconnected from the Bluetooth. Uh, and we get this going here. So, all right. This ain't on me. Can you guys hear it? Mm-hmm. Guess we're all gonna have to get used to this again, huh? <laughs> <laughs> we will, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mac yelling. <laughs> And that's not even the that's, that's not even, not the, even the, the scene. scene. <laughs> I have part. the one. And then okay, here it is. Well, hey, we're with you, Randall. You here, can do so it. I hope you all bear with me. We will, <laughs> so Mac Mac filmed the other one and yelled we will stew at the wrong time, which is also funny. But then Justin also has a video and I'll play it. 
We will stew. <laughs> we the best part is like it's like it's like beef roll footage. Like they did film of the guy in the back yelling it, but they didn't decide not to use it because he like goes all he like he's like smiling afterwards too. Like he's really proud of himself. They dump Gatorade on him in an outtake. Actually, we're oh. like weirdly obsessed <laughs> with with the we will stew guy um <laughs> uh, which i think is mick garris it um, is mick garris yeah yeah Aww. and we we like to say it all the time and and dan <laughs> dan will like dan even edited the footage together so like he does the we will stew and then cut like dan yelled it and then it cut to the actual footage from the stand of everybody clapping <laughs> and Aww. it's like so it's, weird it's followed up with wait what it's followed up with that classic larry line Oh, I'm hey, on this. I'm on this. Which Justin also <laughs> recorded himself saying, but I don't have that video handy. But oh, we uh, are like such nerds about it. And for I don't know, Mike. Mike, can you explain why we find that funny? Uh, I can't. <laughs> Mac, Mac, can you explain why we find it funny? Well, it's like it's those scenes where just you always hear someone randomly yell something out. It's like either most of the time it sounds like it was added way after the fact. But there's that scene in Rogue One when. <laughs> The, you're that guy in the, the meeting at the end they're like let her speak <laughs> but you don't know who it is like it's like was this added in after the fact it's so out of place no i love that uh, kind of stuff classic. and and uh and mick Garris also has a line later that cracked me up that made me laugh in the same way where when mother abigail comes back into town he uh he has a line <laughs> where he yells um she's come back <laughs> and it just feels like so community theater, you know, it mm-hmm. just feels like so hokey and um, yeah, it just cracks me up. So it's, it's, it's to me a very, a very strange sort of phenomenon that we, the losers have picked up on as a running bit, but now it is so deeply <laughs> embedded in our bits that uh, we will stew is cannot be met without laughs. laughs. I have to say, I thought when you were talking about a running joke, I thought you were going to start talking about the rat man. Oh, we oh, will that's get another one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We saved the best for last. <laughs> uh, before we do, let's do Ratman. But before that, because this is related, during the meeting, there's a thing. Um, there, there's a there's another bit that caught my attention that made me laugh a lot, and I think is quite revealing. So you have Brad Kitchener and Susan Stern are the ones who restart the power plant. Mm-hmm. Um, they never really give Sue Stern the credit. They mm-hmm. always talk about Brad. And if they talk about Susan, they, even though she's on the committee and he's not, they always refer to her as being with Brad. So like when they, when they announce like, uh, like when they announce the thing, like they only like give Brad credit for the power plant, even though you saw Sue there. And then when they announce that Sue is on the committee, they describe her as Brad's good friend, Susan Stern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then later, uh, when they when the bomb is about to blow up, some of them sense it, like Nick senses it, and then Ralph senses it. Mm-hmm. And then Susan goes, Ralph, what's happening? And I'm like, why doesn't Sue sense it if she's special too? And I it just made me think, I, I, Sue Stern does not get her just due in yeah. this story. I feel like that was their way because Sue, because everyone that senses it, save for, you know, Nick gets out. And that's I feel not like that true. Was their... Cause Nick is the first one who senses it. No, I'm saying everyone, but Nick, Nick, Nick does sense it, but he's the only one that, but Nick, you know, he's a hero. 
He's got to go for the <laughs> but, bomb. But is he's he a hero? I mean, he doesn't really <laughs> do anything. Like, when you think about it, like, if you know, if you think that there's something in the house, get out of the house then. Like, Nick, what do you stay there for? Oh, so you could open the lid right. and then go, ah! Like, he, he doesn't, He's there's no real, like, heroism here other than the fact that, like, he doesn't actually get the bomb disarmed in time, so he dies. Like, Well, it's confusing because, well, it's not confusing, but I think everybody feels like they need to get out, but I think he's the only one really listening to Mother Abigail who's, set, who's telling them it's in the closet. She doesn't say, get out of the house. Does she? I, I mean, I it, if you think that something's well, wrong... Like leave and she then watch says, the house explode. Said, well, that's true. But in the moment, I think Nick thought maybe there was something he could do. Um, unfortunately, you he, cannot. It's not a grenade. It was like yeah. C4 in there. What's the point? It's just. It seems like such a loss for no reason other than the fact that you need a death. Um, yeah. And it's always bothered me. But I also maybe I'm yeah. just partial because I wanted to see Rob Lowe for the rest of it, other than the <laughs> dubious a cameo he has in the fourth. But then you get part. Dream Low later. Um, yeah. So let's talk about another cameo. We don't get a lot of Vegas in this episode. We do, however, get Trash Can Man's arrival in Vegas, which uh, he wakes up in sort of a weird bed, looks out his window and sees like a child's drawing of, you know, of... It's Acrobat from Aladdin. Oh uh, well, no, it's it's not a child's drawing. It's uh, everyone's screensaver from Windows ninety five. <laughs> I've, I've just walked into the mist. <laughs> yeah, but uh, then uh, Lloyd comes in with Ratman, and this is a scene totally made uh, up because Ratman doesn't show up till like the very end of the book. And uh, but they they had Rick Avilas. They said we got to use this guy. He's great. And he is great. And, uh, but he comes in and they just give him these absurd lines when uh, when and I love that he just I don't know the idea of introducing yourself as the Rat Man is very funny to me. Yeah. So he's just like I'm the Rat Man and this year is Lloyd Henry. He ain't bad for a slice of Wonder Bread or something like that. <laughs> uh, it's such Lord. a Stephen King thing too. It is. it is. Yeah. But it's like so weird. And then uh, he's like so excited. He's like ooh. Good to meet you, Trish. <laughs> you know what's funny in that sequence too is that, you know, Lloyd's like looking good. You know, he's like, you know, he's like suited up or whatever. Ratman has the same shit on that he had no. early on. You know? Maybe he's got a better, a bet, slightly better looking hat. You know what I mean? Like he's just, he doesn't care. He's just there. He's there for the party. You know? But doesn't it seem like everyone wears the same thing in this movie? Like they're cartoon characters. Like I was uh, texting with I was texting with Randall last night and um, about uh, Tom's red shirt, and I I got made well, fun now, of. Well, now Mike Tom. You know, he's mm. making his own decisions now. I know so that, but let's... here's... All right, so... Th- but then you look at Stu, and it's like, all right, Stu, in this movie, you're going to wear a white shirt and jeans, and that's it. Uh, occasionally, you get it, maybe a leather jacket and p- potentially a flannel here and there. Uh, Harold, you're going to be relegated to strictly leather. Um, <laughs> With pearls I think you need it. to talk to the costume the costume designer for the stand. Ooh, I, I, I might. I mean, the, only, valid issues here. the only person who has uh, any costume changes is the person who's told to stand up uh, and uh, to everyone to applaud her how beautiful she is. Oh, um, yeah. Look yeah. How, show them your nice little dress. Uh, Franny, I want you to stand <laughs> up and show them how pretty you look in that dress. Did not like that part. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah the clothing and the, the costuming is hideous in this whole thing. Yeah. Well, I, how I about the dress she wears in that dream? In the 90s, yeah. Yeah, but in the hair, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm probably judging it harshly, but it also looks like it looks like cheap costuming, too, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's CBS, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she's dressed like a wood nymph when in her dream with Mother Abigail after the bomb explodes. I know, yeah, and it's a Christmas pattern. Like, what is themed garden party? And this is also like where again the Franny Goldsmith in the book is just like murdered in the series. Like, I don't think yep. Molly Ringwald does a bad job technically with like the, her portrayal of of this version of Franny. Sure, but. It's just the, it's just always like after you read the book, you're like, ah, this is like such a wrong casting decision for Franny. Like, mm-hmm. Franny is not, you know, fr- we needed like Jennifer Jason Lee in here. Oh man, <laughs> that was amazing. What if we you had like, I mean? like, what if like Noah Baumbach had directed uh, the Stan miniseries and you had like Jennifer Jason Lee as Franny? Um, you get uh, you get Ben some, Stiller as Stu. Yeah, Ben Stiller as Stu. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Ben, I, ben Stiller, the would world be, on my fucking uh, shoulders. <laughs> Oh God! Um, um, so yeah. let's talk. And then I guess just the other thing too is like we, and this is related to the idea that we don't really get a sense of what people do. You know what I mean? Like we don't mm-hmm. see. And so, but like Lloyd, like you see him and he's dressed up and he's there with Flag in Vegas. But it's like, what does he do? I know. You know what I mean? He's just there and he's aligned with Flag, but you yes. don't really like see what he actually does. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, that is weird. You see a lot of like other people bossing people around, you know, like on the on the airfield and stuff like that. You know, like you're like, why why couldn't they get Miguel Ferrer in those scenes? Like, <laughs> I know he literally is like, like apparently he's just in charge of trash. He doesn't do a very good job either. You know, like it's yeah. so weird. Well, that was our big gripe with the actual book is the lack of chapters dedicated to Vegas. It's like you go dedicated yeah. with all the the yeah. people that are going to you know to the Vegas area, and then um, all of a sudden. 400 pages later not even i think it's even more than that it's maybe 500 600 pages later then you're all of a sudden you're like back in vegas you're like whoa a lot of things have changed Um, yeah i remember we talked about that in the episode like how long how many pages there were with no vegas do you you all think that this new miniseries because we have such like in-your-face programming these days like like you were saying mike with breaking bad like people aren't afraid to watch things that are difficult and Mm -hmm. with like um uh, harried characters that are, you know, just more gray, like you were saying. Yeah. Do you think we'll get more of the realistic version of Vegas where there's, like, families and shit there and, you know, people are, like, you know, it's almost like... The the version of Vegas in the book, to me, felt like... It felt like Boulder just... There was just, like, that fear that if you stepped out of line, you'd get killed. Yeah. And yeah. you have a bit of the lottery feel, you know? It's like, all of a sudden everyone's showing up to watch this execution. Yeah. But like before that, like, like it is a well-oiled machine and they do do, they do show that when they first show Vegas that they, like they are, they are like, they're already cleaning up and doing all the things that like the, the committee hasn't even decided to do yet. They haven't even, but they're also the just haphazardly that, walking I mean? around with, with assault guns. Yes. Yes. But yeah. I'm just saying is, is like, <laughs> that's very true. But I feel like this, the audience today is ready for the Vegas that we want well, to portray. I agree. I'm very what's, interested yeah. to see if yeah. we're going to see that. But it's like King talks a lot in the book about how many kids are in Vegas. Like uh-huh. that's yeah, something like he discusses or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that to me, and I think that's probably with this being on network TV, they were like, well, if we blow them all up at the end, we can't show any kids. You know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. that's probably right, probably was right. a consideration. And obviously now I think that that wouldn't be as much of an issue because we're all broken, dark inside anyways. <laughs> so it's like, uh, but I do find that really interesting. And because King really does highlight 
how many children there are in Vegas. Like, I remember that specifically. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, let's talk about one very important part of part three, which is Stephen King's cameo <laughs> as Teddy Wyzak. Uh, what is everybody's thoughts on this? Mike, let's start with you. Well, I love his relationship with Nadine. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just love it. I mean, just just, just flat out embarrassed by her. Almost mean spirited. It's almost just like a frustrated uh, stepfather. That's that, that's the, the the physical demeanor he presents. Um, yeah. It's like you're gonna embarrass me in front of Mother Abigail. You little. <laughs> There's this like sense of responsibility that he has for her. You yes. know that I don't feel like is really earned in the thing. But yeah, like that meta quality of his cameo. I that's something that actually kind of moved me a little bit because like I think Randall, I think you were talking about how um, like kind of bullshit it is, how they all come up to mother Abigail and they're just looking in awe at her. And the one person I will allow that from was Stephen King, because I was thinking like, here's this character that he created and I just try to put myself in his shoes and like, what would it be like to actually see this person? You know, like, it would almost be like watching like Roland come to life, you know? And so I could right. kind of let him like kind of enjoy that a little bit. And then I also like if you talk about the cordwood stuff, like when he's kind of confronted with these gross scenarios that he's created, like I liked how they kind of I think they were kind of intentional in how they used his cameo as oh, cheesy as totally. it kind of was. Even the but, fact yeah. that he says cordwood because it's like, yeah, that's my description. I came up with it. Uh, exactly because i remember there's like a lengthy discussion on our original podcast about this where we were like what the fuck is cordwood and then you know you look it up and you're like why are they why are they so disgusted by the idea of cordwood is it just because it's like the layering of bodies that they associate with how he says cordwood it's just such a weird sort of implied uh uh word association there you're like oh yeah you know we understand why they're grossed out by that but i don't think they're grossed out by the cordwood is the fact that the bodies of become the consistency of cordwood oh okay i could get that i think it's more of that but but i yeah uh i think you guys i think i think i think that's interesting i I haven't really looked you know randall's a randall's a hater of teddy (laughs) and i so i was just ready i was ready for everyone to just throw him on the fire i i do like uh no, but I, I do like what Jim was saying. But like, I, there was that scene where when he does see Mother Abigail, and he's just like Mother Abigail, and he almost Mother like Abigail. If, if they had stayed Mother with Abigail. him, if they had, if the camera didn't go off to someone else, and they had just followed him all the way up, running up to Mother Abigail, I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> it's very, the way that he approaches her is very like off-putting. He's clearly mm. part of the problem that's like deifying her and whatnot, whatnot. But mm. uh, yeah, it's. It, uh, it didn't bug me that much. I think when I was a kid, I don't know. I don't know if I. I'm trying to think if I knew that that was him. I don't think I did. Because I don't know if I really knew what he looked. You know, because the stand was one of the first things that I watched that really got me into King. But I'm sure Justin probably told me or something. You know, when we were watching it. Um, yeah, I, I knew. Yeah. I want to hear Randall's was, thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I always knew it was him because his face was all over, you know, the back of books. And yeah, even though this yeah. was the first thing I ever read, I had looked at his books in stores before and I'd seen him on TV before and various things. So I remember knowing it was him. And I liked his cameo when I was young, but now that I'm older, I, I hate it. And <laughs> I think it's because, like, I, like, I love his cameo in Pet Cemetery, right? Like, where yeah. he's the mm-hmm. priest and he's got, like, one line maybe. And that's the kind of cameo I like from him because 
I don't want, even though Stephen King in many ways has already shattered the mystique of being Stephen King because he's <laughs> a very public figure and he talks a lot. It's like, there is something about him sort of, I don't know. And the word, this is the thing is I'm going to be harsher. I'm going to sound harsher than I really am. But it's like, oh there's this sense of almost like debasing himself. Yeah. <laughs> like in this. And I think it's just because he's, he's for me personally, he's immersing himself too deep in this world. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to see the author immerse that deep in there, especially when it's in parts of the story that I'm not a huge fan of, which is like the, basically the way that the Boulder free zone is depicted in here, which isn't necessarily how I feel like he depicted it in the book. Mm -hmm. Like the scene when they're at the meeting and him and Mick Garris are sitting together and they're like clapping about everything, you know, and like cheering stew on and everything. Like you see those scenes a lot. And then, you also see him like, I don't know, I just think about like, here's the guy who created this big, amazing world and this incredible story and all these characters. And he's like just getting shuffled around from scene to scene to play like an extra. You know, there's just something about it that like makes me like it pulls me out of the story. He's not a particularly good actor. We know that yeah. about him. And he just see, it just seems kind of hokey and cheesy. And the tone of the piece to me, like, I don't mind Jordy Verrill because that's comedy. Yeah. You know, like, that's supposed to be silly. But here it's, like, supposed to be serious scenes and you've got Stephen King in the middle of them, like, mugging it up, you know? And, like, clearly, mm -hmm. like, relishing yeah. the idea that he, everybody's going to recognize him, you know, because well, he's playing this role. If he was in one scene in one small role, then I would yep. like it, you know? But it's what, like, what, what role would that have been, Randall? Um, I don't know. A dead, the dead guy in the car wash. <laughs> yeah, no, I think a dead body would have been interesting <laughs> if he was that, or like even really? someone that was working in the power plant or something like that. Like he hits a lever, and you're like, oh, there's Stephen King. Uh, like in Mr. Mercedes, think, he popped up I think as a as dead the, body. Like, the monster crier would have been cool. Yeah, see, I would have been fine with that. It's like because in he Mr. Mercedes, he showed up as like a dead yeah. body, like with a knife in him, and that was fun. You know, it's like because it's that's a relatively serious story, and they didn't linger on it too long. Like I also, I'm, I know you, I know some of you, I know you like it, Mike, and stuff, but like I do not like his cameo in it, Chapter Two, because I'm, I'm like, this is too self-aware. It's too self-indulgent. If he had like one line, it might be funny, but like I'm not here for the the meta moment with Stephen King. You know, mm -hmm. it's like I like him in Pet Cemetery, where he's an ominous presence in that world because yeah. that's such a dark story. You know, it's well, I, I traditionally like story. those moments for cameos regardless. It's just like I like the, the less is more when it comes to something yeah, less so is more. big. And, and so I find him very ominous and scary in Pet Cemetery. You know, it's like it's it's a moment that I get a chill because he is there as like a holy figure there for a very brief moment. And that to me is like super spooky. You it's know, like, um, what? Oh, go for, what? Oh, never mind. Go for it. Go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, like, that's my thing is this This isn't a hill I would die on or anything. Like, obviously, it's not <laughs> like it's a very <laughs> his cameo is very sweet. Like, I'm just being a hater. But it's like uh, but I just like I find myself being like, Stevie, you're debasing yourself by doing this. Like you are you are playing too large of a role in a mm -hmm. in an imperfect version of this world that you created. And like. It's I don't know. It's weird to me, and I I almost would have preferred to see him in Vegas. And uh, hey, his biker, his leather vest might have fit in a little bit more over there. So I think it, and you also would have fit in more with like the cameos he's surrounded by. You know, like when you yeah. get like, Tom Holland or um, you get like Sam Raimi and even John Landis. Like, why not be surrounded with them? Like, if you're gonna f fulfill the joke, like yeah, you have all these horror directors. You're also a master of horror, and you directed Maximum Overdrive by this point. So you are kind <laughs> of like a director in the sense also. So why not do that it's almost like yeah because he's a screenwriter he felt maybe like well i could 
I could take this part also, but I agree with you, Randall. I think that seeing him in these moments that are just so garish and also uh, seemingly contradict everything that you put to paper, it's almost like he's uh, giving it a stamp of approval. Like, like he's like celebrating this like world that he's creating. And then when you get back to the idea that all this stuff is so like, uh, like so schmaltzy and so smug, he's then roped (laughs) into it. You know, and like, I, I don't know, like, I, for, I know it sounds so outlandish to say that, but like, I just watch these scenes and they're so smug. It's like, I almost like, I don't like sympathize with Harold, but I could see why he hates these people. Like, I would totally be like there <laughs> sitting there being like, all right, I'm going to throw these fucking bodies away. I'm going to go home and I'm going to drink and like watch the fucking television fuzz for a while and, and just well, like it, think about how dumb this world is. Uh, throw but, a bunch of rocks through windows. It's so yeah, right? I would. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, per- I think the perfect sequence that could have been like when they all go to clean the church if everybody had their mat their like their faces covered Mm. and then at the end of that sequence when they're at like the junkyard like dumping the bodies like they all pull their masks down for like a heartbeat and you and it's all those horror directors cleaning up the mess yeah you know what i mean Mm. like like, that would have been like funny and one of them's like literally just cuts cuts the next scene like it's just like if you know who they are it's funny but it doesn't take away from the Mm-hmm. I, I would even the, I think you could earn a funny moment you could have them all take off the mask and then one of them's like so uh is the sizzler still open uh and then like, <laughs> the, <cuts is, laughs> the sizzler well, that old sizzler what if he's the priest that's dying on the altar uh, you know? yeah. and that's like kind yeah. of revisiting the pet cemetery cameo yeah or what if he is the werewolf that tells Harold he's a wild yes. oh, I'm, into cool. I'm into oh, that I'm into that king the original kid you know <laughs> reuse some of his Jordy Verrill costumes too yes there is a cameo in here that I love. What's uh, that? And it's going to take us to a small town up in the Pacific Northwest called uh, Twin Peaks. Uh, <laughs> we get Warren Frost, who's Doc Hayward in Twin oh, Peaks, yeah. uh, also of Seinfeld fame, who's playing Dr. George Richardson. And God, does this guy have a face for a doctor or what? Like, I mean, yeah, no just <laughs> fucking great. I love him in every scene in this. This could have been a cameo that King does, but I'm just glad we got Warren Frost in it. The late Warren Frost. Um, yeah, this this doc could check me out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> God, <laughs> it's like I got, I got something on my penis. Here, look at um, uh, uh, one geez. one last one last line that like I I I have a love hate relationship with because here's the thing: I love Ozzy Davis uh, as the judge. I wish yeah. that they gave him more because he's uh-huh. an incredible actor, incredible mm-hmm. legacy, great playwright as well. Yeah. Guys had an amazing career, and uh, one of two black people in the in Boulder. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And so, um, it like I wish we could have seen a little bit more, but I hate the line. I like the way he delivers it in a way, but it's also like it falls in line with all the sort of like uh, spiritual folksiness of of sort of the free zone in that scene is when they like basically say like, well, can we just accept the, the committee as is, you know? And then, um, and he just, stand, they're like, judge, he's like, you damn right. You can. And I, for one think it's a damn good idea. I know it's yes. so overwrought and also just like <laughs> really tacky and, and kind yeah. of cliche. Like, uh, yeah. like why are they using and, the like, word damn twice in one sentence? Dude. Uh, yeah, yeah. And like, why are they all so excited to have, like these people at the top like yeah. why 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 is it such a damn good idea just because they trust mother abigail that much or yeah. do they all well, think the that it's larry like, should be the guy running the town yeah <laughs> it's very the, the whole like blind faith thing rings mm-hmm. true in that whole sequence yeah. and it's almost it, to me it feels deliberate you know what i yeah. mean like sure like you can tell like even when they when they accept it you can see there's a shot of larry where he's like still like 
oh shit like i gotta do this now uh-huh. but and like that's all he gets though you know what i mean we don't get to see him like really grappling with like being on the on the thing like in the book you know but like you know it's all you could really do but yes i agree i think i love ozzy davis i i think that sequence in the next we'll get to it uh with him is is uh, kills me but uh, i wish we we had a lot more of him for sure uh i want to ask everybody a couple quarantine questions if uh Let's hear it. If we're moving on. Um, they mention the flu and they say, uh, who says it's gone? If, mm. uh, our, or if our babies will be immune. And I wanted to ask with, with this whole COVID-19 thing, because, uh, you know, there's like articles that have come out saying, you know, well, people that have had it are getting it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do we, how do we feel about the, like when this stay at home thing cools off? And people start going back out there. This also lends to the next question, which is the quarantine. Like, should we just go back to the way we were doing things? Well, I don't think people will be able to. I think there's too much paranoia because it's like, yeah, you can get sick again. And it's like, like Asia has already experienced a second wave, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and that's the thing is that that's, what's so horrifying about all this is like, we're not going to be comfortable. Like we used to be going to crowded places until there is a vaccine, you know? Right, and even right. then it's like the disease is still in the air. It's like, you know, it's that's, I think what is so hard about all this is like, you know, I'm somebody who, I mean, I'm, I know you guys probably are too, but it's like, I'm somebody who loves going to live music and I'm seeing people say it'll be fall 2021 before we get to go to live music again, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like that. And then of course like you think about the freaking industry and it's like, Jesus Christ, like what's going to happen? Like, are we going to be doing quarantine bedroom shows for another year and a half? You know, Could be. And, I mean, maybe. I that's everything's going to pivot hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it goes down to, um, you know, the, the being logical about it, which is, you know, we live in a current world where we can't be, um, you know, the, those at top, uh, don't even know how to define that word. And, um, am I for, uh, a, a return to work, you know, to, to break these stay at home orders? I mean, if there's some science behind it and there's some sort of logic, like I think the idea of kind of rolling things out one by one could be a good thing. I think we eventually are going to get down to a situation where, we are kind of teetering on a, an apocalyptic situation where we go, well, are we going to have deaths or are we going to have actually even more deaths because of the long-term economical effect? And I think that's something that is a, is a hard choice that would be, would break any, would break the strongest president to figure out. And we have arguably the weakest president that has to fucking answer that question. And that's what keeps Mm -hmm. me up at night. That's far more frustrating and scary than um than anything because it's like well how long can you go with this um i think there's there's a point that uh tom savini made in an interview last week uh and sorry if i sound like a star fucker throughout this whole episode but i've just been (laughs) interviewing nothing (laughs) but uh, when i was eating with mario baba and uh (laughs) tom savini you're the real robert Englund of this yeah seriously well you know what when i was sitting there with my lunch and i had a you know a wonderful (laughs) cheese platter um, and uh, Lucci Fulci, Lucci Fulci, Fulci give me a napkin. Just like I was, just like I'll, I'll see you at tennis, baby. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> he was. He was saying he said he had a really great metaphor. Um, and you'll hear the interview next week uh, on Consequence of Sound. But he talked about how we're currently in a situation that's almost like a torture porn movie. It's like, well, if some if you know that the person that's torturing you is just going to hit you once, that's not torture. But if you don't know when this person's going to let up and how long you're going to live and bleed out, that is what makes it torture. And that's kind of what we're in right now. We don't know how long this is going to be. 
Um, yeah. And that's kind of what this chapter is a little bit about. It's like that, that there's nothing, you can only really frame the unknown when you have something that does feel known. And that's what they have right now. Like it's almost like they're more comfortable being out on the road um, in, in these chapters of Stan because it's it. There's nothing to yeah. do. There's nothing to do but to gain. And now that they have what they have again, like they have a piece of society, you have everything to lose. The chain, the, the dominoes can fall again. And there, there's an anxiety that comes with that. Um, I don't know if this chapter succeeds in being able to show that and capture it, but the book certainly does. Yeah. Well, we just got our Tennessee orders that we are going to start opening up on um, May first. We got those today. Although I do think the mayor is going to have some autonomy. So, like, I it kind of panicked me a little bit. I was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if we're ready. I don't think my job is going to expect us back in the office. But like, there's this this feeling of like I feel like I'm kind of in a cocoon right now. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about this a lot more, like on a personal level. Like, this has kind of been an opportunity for me to kind of like evaluate like who I am and like when everything is stripped away and I'm just sitting here in my house all day long like what is it that I was doing that I don't need anymore and do I need to continue that like when I look at my desk most of the stuff that I kept on my desk at work is not here and I realized I don't need it you know I've Mm, totally changed how I plan like I'm not wearing makeup anymore which is something I would do for work every day and now I'm thinking like why do I care so much about these things and what am I going to choose to carry with me when I come back out and I think when I got that when I read that headline that we're going to start going back I was like I don't I don't think I'm ready you know I don't think I've kind of thought through all of this yet and I feel like when you're on the road kind of like what you were saying you're still heading towards something and like there are so many possibilities and then when they get to Boulder they have to start actually making the choices and they have to like start following through with all of these things and I think I'm still kind of in this like ideal like oh well maybe I could just not wear makeup to work anymore or maybe like I don't need my planner anymore but then when you actually start to try to function again I think it's kind of like what Glenn is always saying like the stuff's all sitting around there and it's so easy to fall back into those old habits of just picking the guns up you know or picking Mm -hmm. up the weapons and like are we going to fall back into these same patterns you know yeah I mean there's been a lot of discussion I mean David Lynch had a really great piece that was out um today on the Hollywood Reporter talking about how you know, after this, uh, he thinks, I mean, he's always taken the more holistic, uh, meditative approach clearly. Cause he's, you know, the icon of transcendental medita- meditation, but he talks about how like, this is a great area, a great time for us to kind of, um, you know, figure out, uh, where we can kind of go and how we can be without our devices. And he has a more optimistic mm-hmm. way of thinking like after this, he thinks that we're going to be a little bit more mindful. I don't think so, but you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Nice, I think it's a I nice mean, idea. I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of people that will. Yeah, but I don't think like government will. No, God, you no. know what I mean. Well, I, not I the think, one we have now. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Absolutely. All they're not. trying to do is pass the buck. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I just, Whew. I'd like to be a little optimistic too, and I, I'd like to think that, you know, at the end of this, at the end of this pod episode, we'll. We'll all walk off, the four of us, and, and one of you will fall by the way by the great <laughs> WG Snuffy hey, Walden no, will no play spoilers. in the background. Because I love that that piece Aww. of music. I do too. I think Oof. that's a good... Yeah, I, that actually know, is yeah, really give him, give him all the all the flack for some of the, the cues and stuff and, and yeah. the Nadine and Harold sequence stuff. But uh, I love that piece of music. I love the ending of this uh, Yeah, the more, the more meditative... I think the more meditative and uh, melancholy uh, tracks 
um, that Snuffy does here are really good. Well, we yeah. get the worst like Tom's two. Theme. Larry and Nadine, the rejection, and then Trash Man in Vegas is just... Oh, oof. the Vegas music. It's so... Bad. What? Vegas is this guy? If this is WG audience... Uh, uh, hell, <laughs> like you guys' rendition was fantastic. By the way, <laughs> I had a great life to think that that is like what's going to be playing in hell. Uh, um, well, then in so, that case, I'm definitely choosing Boulder. So, <laughs> what are your final thoughts about the stand part three, the betrayal? Mike, let's start with you. Oh boy, um, easily the weakest chapter of the four. Um, I, I think it's it, it's not too hard to see why based on just the hour and a half that we've discussed on this but uh aesthetically it's uh, it's it's lame this is when you start dipping into what i was i've been saying all along is the more hallmarkian uh uber christian qualities that make this just so garish um and almost offensive uh, no it is offensive i just think it's just like i it, it feel i feel um uh, like an outcast. I actually feel like Nadine and uh and Harold here um because it just seems so like well, we're going to be good and good is Christian and that's it. There's no discussion. And um, I've been saying smug a lot and this feels like a very smug chapter. Um, so the the weaker um, the sins of uh, of this miniseries uh, <laughs> manifest themselves in this chapter for me. Uh, having said that, I do love uh, my boy Ray Walston, the late Ray Walston, uh, delivering some <laughs> great speeches in the amphitheater. Um, and that's about it. I don't think uh, that there's much for me. So we're we not we're not doing any nosers for this one yet. No, right? we'll okay. we'll do noses. No. Uh, whoever's on the next one, we'll do All noses. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, Jen, how about you? Um, so when I think about this section specifically, it's kind of to me like a microcosm of why Stephen King adaptations so often don't work, but why people who have read the book are willing to kind of go with it. You know, because I was watching like. The, the Tom hypnotizing scene. Mm. I was watching this, and that's such a moving part of the book. And it, it's because Stephen King has built these characters so thoughtfully and like laid all of this foundation. And so, as I'm watching this, and I've read the book, I don't know how many times at this point, like I am like building, uh, pulling from all of that, and I'm like getting like emotional while I'm watching this. But like, if you're watching this for the first time and you can't really remember who some of these characters are and like what's going going on right now you know it just doesn't work and I feel like it's like they just had not figured out how to capture like all of the like complexity of these characters you know and I feel like with a little more room maybe they could have done it but this is just it's such a big thoughtful story and it just it does it's not adapted well here you know yeah Uh, Mac how about you yeah no I agree I think the it's a rush job of sorts, uh, but I, I and I definitely agree with you in terms of, you know, w- when I watched this as a kid, I was I was watching it through a kid's lens, so mm-hmm. I was and I've always been a very empathetic person, so I, I definitely like, you know, that scene with Tom when when they're when they're putting him under, like that really got to me back then. It gets to me now in a different way because I have read the books. You know, it's like it's like when people. Uh, throw you under the bus for liking the harry potter movies or something if you read the books you're bringing you're bringing all this like hundreds of pages to the to the to to these things that no no one knows so like you're sitting there having a reaction because you know the backstories of all these characters but Mm -hmm. like 
it, 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 it seems it looks kind of embarrassing, but you're like, no, like you don't understand. Like we're but having, having read the book, some of these scenes that could come off as hokey and, and let's face it, they are in this version. I mean, sorry, Mick Garris, but some of them are really hokey and really ridiculous. But the only saving grace is that like I have, I've read the book. And mm-hmm. so there's a weight with a lot of these characters and actors and, uh, scenes that there's a gravity there like when they when they rattle off the people that have died in the house you know it's like you guys were joking around about susan stern not getting a lot of like play but like when they throw that name out there i'm like oh jesus you know yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. i mean it's zoo, hard right? because, yeah mm-hmm. yeah Oof. and like yeah oh Awful. god what if that what you think that'll be in the new miniseries <sighs> i don't think um, so um i hope not yeah uh but uh but yeah i i i have it's a bit of a love and hate relationship with this part of the miniseries because there's some really poignant moments that stick out to me that I really am like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that. Like Nick and Tom's relationships, like true blue. I threw that in there for you, Randall. (laughs) And, uh, uh, I love Larry and the judge, but it's only because it reminds me of their relationship in the book. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So it's like, even though we only get that one scene, it's like, to me, it's like everything. I'm like, yes, but it, then it reminds me of, well, we we don't have enough of this. So yeah, I, I, it's a little back and forth. I think I'm bringing a nostalgia to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it it works on a level. I don't think it's going to work for folks just watching the miniseries on its own. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting because Harold's like my favorite character, and this is his. Well, I, I would, as I've made clear on the pod, I'm not a huge fan of his. Hey, look, love Corin Nemec as Parker Lewis. Don't love him as Harold Lauder. So uh, he's so it's just funny because he's my favorite character in the book, and this is the most play he gets throughout the whole miniseries. But it's also my least favorite part, and I think it's just because there's sort of fundamental mis- mishandling of, uh, in my opinion, the of Nadine's storyline, of Harold's storyline, and then also oh. of just the general free zone. What you might- know, you know, I, we we didn't mention this, and I want to mention it just because I think this is one effective part of Nadine and Harold. It's when they pause and they go like, hey, Nadine, we're damned. Like, that's a yeah. great moment. And it really does yeah. kind of key into, like, King's stuff. And it's just like this little glimpse. But then it's so, like, it, it's just, a, that's what it is. It's just a glimpse. Um, and that, Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple moment. I yeah. agree. That is, a, that is a great moment. I remember I especially loved it when I was young. And, uh, but, yeah, it's like those moments are too few and far between. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so, yeah, it's like, I just think especially the more, more as I get older and, and, you know, once the miniseries, the new miniseries drops, um, I'm planning on writing a piece about sort of the, the opposing ideas of good and evil and how they manifest in the book and then in the miniseries as well. And, and, uh, because to me, it's really fascinating and it does speak to the general idea of, you know, especially from a, when you approach it from a Christian mindset versus when you approach it from like an agnostic mindset and it's there, there's interesting nuance there. And I know we touched on it a lot in our book episodes on it, but you know, it's like, those are super interesting ideas to me. And I think they're rendered. And that's the thing is Mac, you're not wrong when you say they only had six hours, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. It is hard to capture that nuance in, in that amount of time, and it is easier to just frame it as good and evil. And obviously, especially on network TV in the 90s, in the early 90s, it's like, you know, Christian sort of uh, uh, mindsets and things like that were very much the prevailing idea of what was good and sort of the broad societal level. And so um, 
it really does resonate that way sometimes from the music to the uh, general, you know, cinematography to the overwhelming whiteness of it all, too, which, you know, I'm with you, Mike, like, that's not something, you know, when we're talking about art from another period, that's not something that I, you know, I'm usually jumping to point out. But here it does feel pointed, especially mm-hmm. when there's only like two black people that we see in the entire yeah. thing. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's really bizarre. And uh, yeah, so I don't know, it's like, I, I always will have a fondness and an affection, as I've been saying in these episodes, uh, for the stand. But yeah, this one's rough, and the next one is is sloppy and interesting. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> it's it's going to be crazy. So and we'll be back with that episode part four in two weeks. Next week we're going to be wrapping up uh, our two-part series on golden years oh, <laughs> the yes. 1991 uh, series, Woo. and it's going to be the same crew, right, Jen? You're going to join us for part two. Yeah. Cool. That'll be fun. Uh, we have, we, yeah, thank God. We had a very spirited discussion about part one. And uh, man, it is it is something. So uh, so that'll <laughs> that be is. fun. So that's next week. That's going to be a free episode for everyone. This has been a Patreon exclusive episode. So if you're listening, thank you for being a Patreon. Uh, don't, uh, giving us a donation. We appreciate it. It is uh, we are humbled by the amount that of people that have, um, you know, chosen to support us in this time, especially this time. And yeah, so we'll be back with more minisodes and also our part four in two weeks. So, um, yeah, so I think that's everything. This was fun. Uh, Jen, thanks for hopping on with us. Mac, Mike, yeah, thanks for having me. A pleasure as always. Hey, I'm yeah, just glad to be for having here. us on. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think let's say goodbye. Uh, long days. And, and pleasant, pleasant. Nice. I got some hot friends I got some hot friends